moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. Whitney's a big fan of that title. The two big areas that we are going to explore, we're going to learn how and why your voice should lead to action in a business setting and in a DEI setting. So that is a broad topic and we're going to dive into that. We're also going to talk about why DEI is a critical success factor for a business, not just a nice to have. So those are powerfully heavy topics that we're going to get into. And to lead us through that conversation, we have Whitney Goings. Whitney, welcome to the show. So thrilled to have you on. Thank you so much, Jim. I'm happy to be here. Hello, everyone. My name is Whitney Gowen. I am currently a diversity, equity, and inclusion program manager at Molson Coors Beverage Company. My background has been extensively in the CPG industry, but has spanned across sales or business customer development to marketing. And then about a year and a half ago, I made the transition to diversity, equity, and inclusion, where I also manage our early talent program, which is our undergraduate internship program. So it's been three different, three or four different careers mixed in there, but I'm continuing to grow and challenge myself. And it's been a fun run. All of that stuff is pretty awesome sounding. And I know that you've made a lot of impact, but you kind of left out one important thing in that story, and that is that you are an emerging keynote speaker. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. A few weeks ago, I did have the opportunity to speak at my alma mater, Butler University. They had their Black graduation. So I was very thrilled and honored to go back and speak to those 2022 graduates. But that is something that I enjoy doing and just inspiring through humor, encouraging people to laugh at their mistakes. And I think that's something that I've learned along the way. You can't take yourself too seriously, but I think my mom and I would go back and forth about that. She says, I probably need to be more serious, but hey, if you don't laugh at yourself, then, you know, life's going to be a rough road. I can't argue with anything that you said there. And there's an interesting story behind how you got tapped to that keynote opportunity. One of the things that we're going to learn throughout the throughout the conversation is that you've had this sort of track record of making an impact. So before we dive into the main part of the conversation, why don't you just give us a little insight into how you actually got tapped to do the keynote at at Butler, because I think that's a pretty interesting story and ties to the impact that you've had throughout your professional and personal journey. My favorite professor, Dr. Terry Jett at Butler University, my freshman year, I took an elective and it was called Exploring the American Dream Through the Lens of Black Women. And you can only imagine just the setting in this classroom with Butler being a PWI. So it was very interesting. You could tell some people jumped on it and it was their first choice. Other people were just, they missed their their timing to pick a class. So they were just, oh, I don't know what to expect. But it was an amazing class. And we it was pretty much my first exposure to literature specifically from Black women. Dr. Jett, like I said, my favorite professor, she just showed us how important it was to, one, read from, uh, again, going back to how important representation is, but being able to read the literature of Black women that came before me, seeing how that still applies today. And I just truly looked up to her. 
And she had kept in touch with me and kept an eye on me throughout my journey. A few months ago, she tapped me on the shoulder and presented me to the Black Student Union as as recommendation and a suggestion for a keynote speaker. And I was selected. So yeah, really excited. The students were amazing. So I can't wait to see what they accomplish in the, in the years to come. Thank you for sharing that. It's a harbinger of things to come for you as far as your professional journey. So we have a decent lens of where you're at now. I think one of the things that that our audience is always interested in is that you didn't come out fully formed in this role in Molson Coors. So what was the journey and the impactful elements that took you to this spot? Because you have an interesting professional journey, but the question is really framed in a way where you can talk about signature impact moments as you were growing up or as a professional that led you to this. So give us a little insight on that. I had not to laugh at fully formed because I'm still just trying to figure it out, Jim. And I will say, like I said, laugh at my own mistakes. And I'm very transparent. Going back originally from Columbus, Ohio, I knew that I did want to explore and go out of state for school. So I applied to 10 different schools, a different major at every school. And that alone just lets you know, it's like, what is this girl doing? Granted, they were all majors that I was interested in, but it literally ranged from engineering to dance. I was a classically trained dancer growing up. It was something I thoroughly enjoyed. So I went when I selected Butler University, my scholarship was actually to the College of Business that that selected my major for me. So I majored in, I declared my major in marketing after my first internship, which was at Limited Brands now L Brands in Columbus, Ohio, my internship was in marketing analytics. And I quickly learned the importance of being able to speak to both sides of the table. So I was thinking, I'll go in, I have this creative mind. That's all it takes to be successful. I quickly learned how important it is to know the numbers and the financials behind it. So when I went back to school that following year, my sophomore year, I picked up a second major in finance. So I did a double major in marketing and finance, Spanish minor. My senior year at Butler, I did a co-op with Johnson, and that was in customer development or sales. So I was actually moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I was on the target team. So that was a six-month co-op. And then I was offered a full-time role upon graduation. So going into my last semester, I had already accepted a role at Johnson & Johnson, and they moved me to Illinois to sell to on the Walgreens account. Had a great time with J&J, and then I made the transition to another company in Chicago, Conagra Brands. And I, sales was great. So I did the customer-facing sales at Conagra. I did more of an internal sales role, revenue management, but I really knew that I wanted to get back to marketing. This is really interesting to me, and I've written down a handful of notes here. So when you're going through the application process, you had 10 different majors at 10 different schools that you wanted to go to. And one of the areas that you picked as an area of interest was engineering. And then you ended up hybridizing that between marketing and analytics, so creative and technical. And then you wrapped in a finance component of it. So here's where why that caught my interest. So you're talking a, a really strong vein of analytical and technical work and then a creative element. So I'm really curious in understanding like where did that come from? Because usually people pick one side or the other and you've integrated both of these. So what's the story behind that? To be completely honest, so even with the choosing of the different majors, there it was like two-sided. At that time, it was very like taboo to apply undecided. Like you didn't want to come off like this person doesn't know what they want to do with their life, even though we're 18, does anyone really know what they want to do? With it? And then on the other hand, I loved marketing, but 
part of me was like, okay, if I am paying all this money to go to school, I want to make sure that I'm challenging myself. So numbers, to be honest, was never a strong suit of mine. It was always something that I had to work extra hard at. And I remember like my dad is like a math whiz. So I'd be doing my math homework and he's like explaining it to me. And I'm like, one more time, dad, one more time. And so with marketing, granted, it was, it just came really easy to me. And I wanted to make sure that I was graduating. Like I'd spent these four years. I wanted to make sure that I did feel some sort of like challenge or something that I had to work really hard at. And finance, it was like, I remember my capstone class and having to take that extra time to study when I'd look over some of my friends and they're, they come into class hungover, finish the exam and it's, it's nothing to them. And I'm like, how in the world are you? So I, I did have to put in that extra work, but I feel like it was that extra sense of pride that came with it. So yeah, I just feel like I had to show myself that I could do it because like I said, numbers were never my friend. So it was my chance to prove it to myself and tackle numbers once and for all. There's a little bit of a lesson right there, because if, if for an untrained person, marketing might seem like a fluffy topic, but you've integrated marketing, analytics, and finance, which really brings you dead center into, you mentioned talking to several sides of the table at the same time, because you're talking about how the creative can lead to customer behavior, which leads to business results. And then here's the data behind it. And that's a tough gap to bridge because when you look at senior executives, they don't really get marketing. Like, hey, what does the data show? And so this is like career advice for anybody that's actually trying to figure out what they want to do. If you have a passion for marketing, if you drive an analytics component and a finance component in there, there's going to be a demand for that integration because a lot of traditional marketing folks can't speak to the finance side or the data side enough to connect with a senior executive. Did you feel having that background better equipped you to have those sort of conversations with senior leadership? Oh, absolutely. And that's why I picked up the second major in finance as well, just after that first internship in marketing analytics. And I went in, I was thinking it'd be some really artsy, creative job. And it was 50-50, like it was 50%, yeah, artsy and creative, but you had to know the numbers. You had to be able to speak to the data and create this really beautiful story with the data to really enroll people in, in your vision. So yes, it's definitely made the transition easier. And then even when I was talking about my transition from sales or customer business development over to marketing, I still did choose a pretty heavy analytical side of marketing. So I went to Marketing Insights when I came to Molson Coors, which has been great because I'm essentially, I'm using data, but I get to tell the story of the consumer. I get to be the voice of the consumer that's not in the room. And that, if you talk about data heavy, so both qualitative and quantitative, it really helps you to, helps the company decide which direction to go. And I think, at least my experience at Molson Coors, I love how we put the consumer first and deciding which direction to take. So it's more so how can we fit into their life based on what they're already telling us? I'm a sales guy that plays in the marketing space and Mm -hmm. I'm nowhere near, I've said this often before in other shows, I'm probably the only Indian on the face of the planet that is not good at math. So (laughs) I don't have the analytics side that you do, but you just mentioned something, the voice of the consumer and using qualitative and quantitative data to inform through the voice of the customer on what action the business should take. So for those in the audience that really don't have much of an understanding of how all of that works, 
Can you like give us a high level overview of how data is leveraged to make those calls and business decisions? Yeah. So sometimes we do more so exploratory research. So that's maybe when we're thinking of how to prepare our innovation team two to three years out. So let's say about three years ago, I'm not sure why I looked at the clock, but that was in years. About three years ago, our inside team would have been doing research, heavy research on cannabis and alerting our our product innovation brand team on, hey, this is what's coming down the pipeline. These are people, these are the sentiments on THC versus CBD. This is how we can embed it in beverages. These are the regions where we could, we're more likely to be successful versus regions where we feel like we know that this is not going to be legal anytime soon. So those are the more of the exploratory areas. And again, when we think about Molson Core is how to fit into life celebratory moments. So I'm just thinking about our beverages, even looking at different cultures and understanding, okay, how can we fit into this celebratory stage? Or how can we fit into those moments where people are connecting versus just socializing those moments that are for couples versus large family gatherings. So those are more exploratory areas. Then you have your marketing insights teams that work specifically with brands. So whether that brand is looking to expand into an area or an occasion that they haven't played in before, working specifically to talk to consumers of that brand, seeing if we have a genuine space or right to play in that area. Maybe we're thinking of innovating, understanding how people feel about flavors. Are they, when we think about the category of light beers, how important is it that a beer is under 100 calories? Do you care more about the calorie or do you care more about the taste? We think about Miller Lite and how we probe at Michelob Ultra and talk about how that that one more calorie is worth the better uh, or more flavorful taste. So yeah, those are the different areas that we try to explore with our consumers. Because once again, we can have a lot of ideas in our head, but if our consumers are like, I don't give a crap about that, it's not going to sell. So making sure that we're always bringing that data and that customer story back to our innovation teams. Thank you for that great primer. And for those that'll catch this on YouTube when it comes out, I'm sitting here bobbing my head like a bobblehead because I'm a research nerd too. So whenever somebody starts talking about research procedures and practices and stuff like that, I get totally nerded in. But the other thing that you just mentioned that's critical And this is something that I see in sales all the time. And even in some marketing organizations, it's, oh, how do we figure out what our customers want? And my answer is, I got an easy way. Go ask them. (laughs) Pick up the phone and call them and ask them, hey, we're trying to figure out whether to do X or Y. What would have the bigger impact on your day-to-day in terms of solving this problem? And and it's such a simple answer, but then you have so many organizations that are guessing at, okay, we have this persona of this person. We think they care about this sort of stuff. So it's great that you tied all that stuff together. The big thing to take away from this part of the conversation is that you're not somebody who is inexperienced with the the task or the activity of developing someone's voice. So you've lived in a space where your marketing is the voice of the customer. That's actually the role that they play. And that's an interesting position to be in because I think there's some relevance or application in how that morphed into your DEI journey. What influence did your experience as a marketer deeply involved in analytics and in the finance side of it, but ultimately developing the voice of the customer. How did that capability lead you into the DEI space? It's twofold. There's a professional aspect and there's a very personal aspect. So 
from a professional standpoint, and it just goes back to the culture of marketing insights or consumer insights at Molson Coors Beverage Company. And it's all about, we rarely even call our customers consumers. We always think of them as humans first. And it's, I mean, talk about fluffy, but we all have these signs um, across the marketing organization that I am human and things like that to just remind us we aren't looking to just sell. We're looking to speak to humans and fit into their lifestyle. So I will say we lead with empathy at Molson Coors, at least our marketing department. And I feel like it's it's been so beneficial to lead with that empathetic mindset when it comes to the consumer voice. So I feel like that's the professional standpoint of how it was so easy to switch over to diversity, equity, inclusion, because if you're not leading with empathy in DEI or in HR in general, you're probably in the wrong profession. But it was such an easy transition from our leadership team down. I feel like we preach how to lead with empathy. We have different trainings on inclusive leadership and making sure that our our people managers and team leaders know how to lead inclusively. And that's driven by empathy. So making sure that they understand that. And then one big initiative that my colleague, Katie Westner, led with our VP of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Stephen Brown, is called the Empathy Experience. And that is actually a fixture that we have, our permanent fixture that we have in our Milwaukee campus. We essentially take the employees through in groups about of about 10 to 12, so pretty small groups in order to facilitate discussion. But if you just imagine a museum and you walk through these different experiences, and each experience is supposed to be addressing the, the lifestyle or microaggressions or a day in the life of a colleague from a historically marginalized group. So right now we have five experiences. We have the Latino experience, the Black experience, LGBTQ+, AAPI, which is our Asian American Pacific Islander experience, as well as the women's experience. Allowing employees to walk through, see different microaggressions or thought and speech bubbles on the wall and get to interact and say, wow, I can't believe someone has to hear that. I can't believe someone says that and thinks that that is okay or be able to create a safe space where employees can ask questions that maybe they never really felt comfortable asking before and having the facilitators be able to lead them through that. So myself being one of those empathy experience facilitators, it's been truly rewarding to see that growth and then to see people leave the experience and want to continue their DEI journey. Now, all that was my personal experience, but I'll get into the my professional experience, but I can get into the personal later. So one of our former guests, Maya Winston, who is a global director of DEI for 09 Solutions, which is a pre-IPO tech startup. Mm -hmm. And her conversation with us when she was on the show was along the lines of, look, a lot of what happens out in the world from a DEI perspective is performative. And what took me, not back, but in, in what you were describing, you're describing a pretty mature, at least from my perspective, a pretty mature DEI practice that exists within Molson Coors. How did it get to be that way? And was it always this way? And what were the factors that led to where you're at from a DEI perspective, both personally and professionally? Our company has always preached putting people first. It's actually one of our organizational values. But I will say every other company we did really hammer down around 2020. So around the time of a lot of the police murders and brutality, we really wanted to make sure that employees understood our stance on things. And I think one one pivotal moment and for 
what a lot of employees, what I say is a memory that we'll always cherish is we have quarterly town halls and our CEO, Gavin Hattersley, literally went on a town hall and we get different questions and employees can submit anonymously and employees were asking questions and our CEO literally stopped the meeting and said, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is why it's important regarding our DEI strategy. And if you don't like the direction that our company is going, you're welcome to leave. And to say that without any, I know sometimes companies have their PR teams and they're prepping them to say nice little buzz phrases and things like that. Not at all. Like we, when it comes to our leadership team and especially our CEO, he is 100% on board. And it's some companies, when I hear about their DEI strategy and their action plans, a lot of times they're pulling along their leadership team. And when it comes to our CEO, we're like, we're all jogging at the same pace. And it's such an amazing feeling not to have to fight or plead or explain why something is important. It's more, hey, Gavin, this is an idea we have. This is why we think that we should go for it. And he's like, oh, please go for it. You have my support. So I think that's been huge. And I will say that Gavin does a great job of just making sure that employees know how important we see transparency. So we have these town hall meetings, both like our general town halls, as well as DEI town halls every quarter. We also have our CEO, he gets on, we have a internal kind of like social media site called Yammer and he gets on and he answers questions. He literally chats with employees. You can send in a question, put it on the board for the entire organization to see. And our CEO answers those questions. So he puts himself in the line of fire, which I feel like most senior leaders would try to avoid at all costs. And he's like, no, please send in every question. I want to try to address everything. So I think that is, is a great way to show how important that DEI is, at least at most importance. That is a great sort of background. And, and I'm sure you are, you're into this space in terms of leadership principles, just as much as anybody else is. And when you read the books, they say effective leadership should be vulnerable, authentic, brave, and have an open door. And we get that from a, a textbook perspective, but it's rare, I think you would agree, that Absolutely. a lot of people at the executive level would actually be acting that way. So when you mentioned earlier about, hey, the culture has created a safe space for us to say what we need to say, that actually starts at the top. and. If you're having to push, pull, and drag the executive suite along on any initiative, it's not going to work. So that's pretty interesting from a cultural dynamics perspective. He's been phenomenal to work with. Yeah, it's been a great journey. And I will say just the support, not just from our CEO, but I, that's absolutely where it starts by our entire leadership team. Again, going back to around 2020, when we had a lot of the incidents with the police in black and brown communities, I essentially went to one of our senior leaders and I said, hey, I think your particular team could use more. And this is when I was still in marketing. I think your particular team could use some training to get more comfortable in addressing issues in black and brown communities. I found this vendor. I put time on the calendar. I'll set everything up for you. And they were all for it and really grateful because they wanted to, they recognized that this was an opportunity area, but wasn't fully sure how to approach it. So yeah, what, when you can literally just put time on on, on the calendar of a, a C-suite executive that you've never met in person and say, hey, I want to help, and they're all for it. And rarely do people even people even accept those media, uh, meetings at other companies. Yeah, I, I love the culture and where we're headed and where we've, where we've come from. It's, it's been a journey and we recognize that we're still on that journey and we'll continue to learn and even make mistakes together. But I think the fact that everyone's willing and open to learn 
is the first step. Tune in next time for the conclusion of our conversation with Whitney Goins. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.